Well, once again, good morning to those of you with me here at the Farmington Hills campus, and want to welcome those of you joining us just across town from our Farmington Hills campus in beautiful Farmington Hills, and, uh, and all of you joining us online from places near and far, good morning. Whether you're uh, brand new to Ward Church or have been with us for a long time, I want you to know that God loves you, and I love you too. We've been in a series on the vision, mission, and values of the church, and we're talking primarily about our local church, Ward Church, started 67 years ago here in the western suburbs with roots that go back more than 200 years in the city of Detroit. And of course, our real roots go back more than 2,000 years to the Middle East, to the movement started by Jesus as recorded in the pages of the New Testament. I want to read you a few verses from the book of Acts which is the New Testament story of the church. And there's one word that runs through the story of the church like a thread. And I want you to uh, find that word here in a couple examples, Acts 1.14. They all join together constantly in prayer. Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Acts 2.44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And the one word that ties it all together is the word... Together, together, when, when historically, when God moves in mighty ways, God's people do life together. They don't just attend church, they do life together. They are energized um, by each other. What we read about in the New Testament is this community. They shared their possessions with each other. Uh, they, it says they were one in heart and mind. They spent time in each other's homes. They shared meals together. And the heroes of this new community, the people that got celebrated, weren't necessarily the people who had the most information, but they were the people who modeled generosity and servanthood and hospitality. These were the values of the new community. They testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and God's grace was upon them all. No wonder they grew in depth and in numbers. Right? You, you can't be part of a community like that and not grow and not be transformed. People longed to be part of a community like that, and they still do. Contrast that with life where you and I live. After decades of international research, the Gallup organization has concluded that Americans are the loneliest people on the planet. Does that surprise anybody? Today I want to talk to you about why it's so important that we are together. There are three things that as a church body we do together, three primary gatherings, three primary venues, and uh, and. Uh, we'll talk about these this morning. We gather for worship on Sunday mornings, but maybe not only on Sunday mornings. We gather for worship. Then we connect in groups throughout the church, Bible studies, smaller gatherings where people can actually know us and pray for us and build into us. And then we serve on a team. Now, we do more than these three things as a church, but nearly everything we do could be put into one of these three categories. Now, there are things that you do personally to help you live and love like Jesus. There are personal disciplines, like reading the Bible and things like that that you do personally. But today we're talking about corporate disciplines. Corporate, not meaning business-like, not meaning cold, but corporate from the Latin corpus, meaning body. 
Three things we do together as a body, as a community, as a group. Now, you may have heard me use other language around this. Other times I've talked about these same three things this way. I've said we need to look up, look in, look out. Look up. That's the worship part. We come and we look up to God and give him praise and honor. Look in. We look into each other and I make you better and you make me better and we sharpen each other. And then we look out to the needs around us. And I want to talk about each of these gatherings, each of these corporate body activities uh, in turn. First of all, worship. You may have heard the story about the child who was in the lobby before church service, and he was looking at a big bronze plaque on the wall with engraved names, and he asked his father, what, what, what is that? And his father said, well, these are the names of people who died in the service. And the boy thought for a minute and said, which service, the 9.30 or the 11? Uh, we've all been a part of worship services that have left us feeling kind of lifeless at the end. But we discover in the Bible that worship actually is a matter of life and death more than we knew. You can trace this throughout the scriptures. When the people of God get fuzzy about worship, when they get distorted or lax about worship, uh, it leads to dissension and conflict within the body. It leads to a loss of spiritual passion. It leads to a misunderstanding about the very nature of God. It leads to cold hearts, hard spirits, and the death of community. It really is that important. What is worship? Worship comes from an old English word, worthship, as in worthiness or ascribing worth to something. When we gather for worship, we declare the worthiness, the holiness, the righteousness of our God. Now, in worship service, we might say, boy, I, I got a lot out of worship today, or maybe I didn't get much out of worship today, or I enjoyed worship, or I didn't enjoy it. And that's all, that's all fair game, because when we worship, we do get something out of it. But by definition, worship is not about what you get it is about what you give. We give honor and praise. We gather together in the presence of the living God and we declare his goodness and his greatness and his glory with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's worship. The psalmist says, make his praise glorious. Right? That's your job. That's my job when we're together. And honestly, you're wired for this. You and I are wired at creation with a knowledge of God and a desire to give him glory. For lack of a better way of saying it, you and I are born with a deep need to worship God. Now I know uh, in the United States, people are growing less religious. That's well documented and I feel no need to refute the data. But I think it's interesting that every culture, every tribe everywhere since the beginning of the world has constructed some form of worship. This is interesting to me, not just as a pastor, but it's interesting to anthropologists who find the consistency remarkable. Every culture, every tribe that we know about has some form of worship. Now, they could be very different from place to place, but everybody seems to worship. So anthropologists have this hypothesis. It's an untestable hypothesis, and it goes like this. Imagine you could take a group of babies and put them on a deserted island and leave them there. 
Now, we, 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 would ne- we would never do that. That's cruel. It's an untestable hypothesis. But the hypothesis says if the kids could survive and they had no contact from the outside world and you went back to visit them 20 years later, what you would find is that they have constructed a system of worship and likely have even built places or have, have designated places for, places of, for times and places of worship. And if that's true, that means that atheism is learned... And theism is innate. Worship is innate. We were wired by our creator with an innate knowledge of God and a desire to give this God glory. Now some of you might ask, well, well, can't I worship all by myself? Can I do it personally? Of course you can. And I I hope you do. You can worship God from your favorite chair in your living room. You can worship God when you walk out in nature. I, I love to do that. You can worship God from your car. In fact, a lot of people call out the name of God on I-96 every day. (laughs) You can have personal worship with God, but personal worship does not replace corporate worship of God's people coming together. Jesus said this curious thing recorded in Matthew's gospel. Uh, When you look, it seems odd at first. Jesus said, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Two or three... I, I thought God was omnipresent, that God is everywhere all the time, even when we're alone. What, what's Jesus doing starting a quota system of some kind? Uh, well, God is everywhere all the time, and God's with you when you're all by yourself, but God is uniquely present in his gathered people. There are things that happen when we are together that do not happen when we are apart. Uh, how often do we do corporate worship? Once every seven days. I really think you don't want to violate the, the rhythm that God has placed in us at creation for this honoring of Sabbath and worship. Uh, now, perhaps your own experience of worship is similar to Martin Luther in the 16th century who wrote these words, Martin Luther. He said, at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. In private worship, I can play only the songs I like, my favorites, from my curated Spotify list. When I'm in corporate worship, I have to accommodate for my brothers and sisters who seem to have a different playlist. It's so frustrating, but I accommodate because I want everybody to worship God. In private worship, I might pray the Lord's Prayer, as we do sometimes. In, in public worship, we all pray the Lord's Prayer together. Not everybody wants to pray the Lord's Prayer at the same pace that I want to pray the Lord's Prayer. And it's so frustrating as the whole congregation, you can hear them trying to find a pace, trying to slow down for the slow people and speed up for the, 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 the fast people. And it's a little clumsy while we find our common voice. And then you get to that part, and you know people are wondering, is it trespasses or debts? Is it, and then... And while most of our congregation are debtors, we always have a few trespassers with us on on Sunday. (laughs) Much easier to pray the Lord's Prayer all by myself. But man, we pray it together. It's pretty special. We worship together as a body of believers. Now, the early church didn't just gather for worship. Um, We know what was read today, they devoted themselves to the fellowship Fellowship is a word that gets cheapened in our day. 
When I was growing up, I thought the word fellowship meant food because the church I grew up in had a fellowship hall and that's where we ate. And when the pastor said stay after for fellowship, he meant donuts or maybe a potluck lunch if it was a, a good day. But fellowship returns to, uh, refers to this new community's commitment to each other, this commitment to the group that superseded personal preferences. The early church met not only as a large gathering, but they met from house to house. We know this in the book of Acts. It says they met day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. The temple courts could hold 50,000 people at a time. Some say 100,000 people. That's a large group. But in addition to a large group, they met in smaller gatherings from house to house. Now, we know this for sure. In fact, there was several hundred years where it was not legal to meet in the temple courts anymore, and they met exclusively in homes. Homes was the primary location of the church. We know this for sure. The book of Acts mentions the house of a man named Jason, the house of a man named Titus Justus, Philip's house, Lydia's house, the house of a Philippian jailer, the house of Mary, the mother of John. They met in homes. And when New Testament writers wanted to greet the believers, they wrote to the believers at the house of Priscilla and Aquila, at the house of Aristopolis, at the house of Narcissus, which I think is where the egomaniacs met for their small group, (laughs) at the house of Nympha and Archippus. In the New Testament, the idea that there was this optional small group program Uh, didn't really exist. Small groups is where the church met and how they did life. William Beckham in his book, The Second Reformation, calls this the two-wing church. The two-wing church. This is what he writes. He says, the creator once created a church with two wings. One wing was for large group celebration. The other wing was for small group community. Using both wings, the church could soar high into the heavens, entering into his presence and do his will all over the earth. After a few hundred years of flying across the earth, the two-winged church began to question the need for the small group wing. The jealous, wicked serpent, who had no wings at all, loudly applauded the idea. Over the years, the small group wing became weaker and weaker from lack of exercise until it virtually had no strength at all. The two-winged church that had soared high into the heavens was now for all practical purposes a one-wing church. The creator of the church was very sad. He knew the two-winged design had allowed the church to soar into his presence and do his bidding, and now with only one wing, just lifting off the ground required tremendous energy and effort. And if the church did manage to become airborne, it was prone to fly in circles, lose its sense of direction, and not fly very far from its takeoff point. Spending more and more time in the safety and comfort of its habitat, it grew content with an earthbound existence. In compassion, the Creator finally stretched forth his hand and reshaped the church so it could use both wings. Once again, the Creator possessed a church that could fly into his presence and soar high above over the earth, fulfilling his purposes and plans. There are some things that happen in a smaller setting that cannot happen in a larger setting. And there are some things that happen in a larger setting that cannot happen in a smaller setting. We really need both. Smaller groups are 
best places for accountability and support and leadership development and spiritual gift identification and prayer and, and, and uh, in ways that large groups can't provide. Proverbs 27 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That happens in a smaller relationship. Might be, might be a formal church group, might be an informal friendship, but we need each other to sharpen each other. Jesus modeled small groups for us. He had the 5,000 people on a hillside. He had the 72, but he had the 12, and some would say he even had the three. 12 is about the size of a typical small group at our church. Now, some interesting uh, notations about the small group that Jesus led. First of all, Jesus recruited his own small group leaders, his, his own small group members. He invited them. This is very unusual for a rabbi in that day. At that time, if you wanted to study with a rabbi, you went to the rabbi and asked, may I study with you? But the rabbi Jesus recruited his own students. Imagine the affirmation that people felt when Jesus invited them to be part of his special group. Now, some of you are, are, are hosting a group for the Nehemiah study, and you're building your own guest list. But imagine the affirmation people will feel when you invite them to be part of your group. I know also you're feeling some vulnerability because what if the people you invite say no? But you are modeling what Jesus uh, modeled for us. You are doing what Jesus modeled for us. Notice also, Jesus didn't seem to be all that selective in his invitations. <laughs> it's a remarkable group. Peter was impulsive, Thomas was a doubter, Judas was greedy, James and John were ladder climbers, there was a man named Simon who was a zealot, meaning he hated tax collectors, then there was a guy named Matthew who was a tax collector, which means he hated zealots. Why did, why did Jesus invite those people into a small group? I think Jesus was setting up a crucible for learning. Because the Jesus community is not the place where you get to be around people who are all healthy and normal and beautiful kind of people. Look around you right now. <laughs> it's where you and I uh, learn from Jesus how to love people who are as messed up and as sinful and as broken as I am and as you are. Experts in small group life Maybe you've heard this phrase before. They say every group has an EGR in it. Have you heard this? An EGR, that's an extra grace required person. And the law of averages says every group has at least one EGR, and if you think your group doesn't have one, it's probably you. <laughs> so Jesus has this little group, and they're all EGRs. And he loves them, and he spends time with them, and he washes their feet. And it's like he enjoys being with them. He's genuinely delighted when they're around, and no one had loved them that way before. After three years of that, their life is utterly changed. They're not just extra grace required. It turns out they're extra grace received kind of people. And that's you and me. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews... Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Apparently, in the early church, there were some people who had given up the habit of meeting together. We're not told why. 
Might have been busyness, forgetfulness, fear. But the writer says, don't do that. We need the gathering to encourage each other and all the more as Jesus, the time of Jesus approaches. We have to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We gather for worship, we gather in groups, and then we serve on a team. And I don't need to remind the group gathered here this morning that serving was at the core of Jesus' life, identity, and teaching. Just one quick reminder from the lips of Jesus. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now again, you might ask, but can't I serve by myself? Uh, Yes, you can serve by yourself. You can serve your neighbors and your workmates. Um, You can serve your family. You can volunteer at great organizations for sure. But something special happens when the body of Christ serves together in Jesus' name. When we carpool to tutor kids in the city. When we load Christmas shoeboxes onto the semi-truck when we fly to participate in a disaster relief project, when we put together a little um, skit to teach children the Bible, when we quilt blankets for the children's hospital. There's a powerful witness when we can say, uh, look what one body of Jesus has done when they came together to adopt 22 square blocks of the city of Detroit, when they sponsored one school in India, Look what we can accomplish together in Jesus' name under the power of the Holy Spirit. We gather for worship, we connect in smaller settings and groups, and we serve together on teams. And as a result, we are shaped and we grow in our ability to live and love like Jesus. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Not because somebody's taking attendance Not because of guilt, but because we need it to keep warm hearts from growing cold. Last story, and then we're through. Very early in our marriage, Angie and I hosted our small group at our house. And not to be stereotypical, but when people arrived, all the women went to the kitchen to help Angie. And all the men in the group came to the backyard and stood around the grill to help me get it lit, which I was having some trouble doing. And the men circled up and they encouraged me to pour more and more lighter fluid on this thing to get it lit. And I would just soak it and the flames would shoot up and kind of knock us all back. And then it would down to nothing again. And we would sneak up on it and squirt the, and it would all shoot up again and all go down to nothing again. And when we went into our wives, um, we, we, our eyebrows were all gone. <laughs> and a lot of us have been bald ever since. The guys had different strategies about how to light a charcoal grill, but one thing every man seemed to understand is to light a charcoal grill, you have to get the charcoal briquettes all stacked on top of each other. They've got to be close to each other. Uh, This is a crazy thing about charcoal briquettes. If you can get it lit, and if they're all stacked together, it will stay glowing white hot for hours. But spread the briquettes out, and they grow cold in a matter of minutes. Just the way God made the charcoal briquette. Listen, that is just the way God made the human heart. This is the fellowship of the burning heart. And you are not going to have a heart that blazes with the presence of Jesus in isolation. 
You're just not. And the enemy knows this all too well. Scatter the flock and warm hearts grow cold. Neglect the assembly and fire fades. We need each other. God wired us for relationship with him and relationship with each other and we need a place where we can know and be known, serve and be served, uh, celebrate and be celebrated. God gave us each other so that we can be the fellowship of the burning heart. Would you pray with me now? God, we know that you exist in perfect community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you have extended that community to us. You have invited us in to the richness of community. You've wired us for relationship with you and with each other. Help us each to find that band of brothers and sisters with whom we can share life. Help us to encourage each other and, and to, to keep each other on fire for Jesus. Help us to build the kind of authentic community that heals hurting people, that softens skeptics, attracts outsiders, and delights you. This we pray in the life-giving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the church agreed and said,